Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. This week I want to talk about geomorphs. So I was chatting with uh, Michael Chicago Wiz over on the Audio Dungeon, and uh, they mentioned that they're running a, a game using uh, geomorphs, basically a Chaos Wars game, sending the party through a geomorph dungeon on Sunday of GaryCon. So if you're, if that sounds interesting, <laughs> check that out. Uh, if people aren't signed up for GaryCon yet, it's one of my favorite things to do every year. So uh, definitely come on down to GaryCon if you can. Anyways, that was a side note. So geomorphs, you, you know, it's funny. I, I see geomorphs and actually Dyson Logos uh, has like a whole series of them that are very cool. If you just kind of Google, you'll find them. And um, I think they're for sale. Uh, possibly. You probably have to look, but I've seen that uh, he posts some stuff. It's really cool how he connects them together and creates these really cool dungeons. And of course, that's inspired by, I think, I think, I'm not a historian here, but I'm pretty sure that the Geomorphs are one of the very early D&D products. In fact, I got my hands on some uh, when I first got back into playing, and I've since uh, started to use them. And it's well, okay, I'll say I started to use them, but what in fact I did was I prepared myself to use them because I'm using the Misty Isles as my baseline right now where the party is in my OD&D campaign. And every one of the islands has multiple areas where they have an entrance to what they call the underground. So since the party is hopping around from island to island and could potentially go into the underground at any point in any area, I thought to myself, am I going to make 10, you know, let's say first through third level <laughs> of the mega dungeon, you know, so that I'm basically ready? Or am I going to kind of quantum ogre it and just have the same dungeon and whichever one they go in, they're going to be the same place? For some reason, even though obviously the players wouldn't know that, I don't know, that just didn't sit well with me. So I was trying to figure out how can I make this work? And what I've come up with, and, and if you've been following this podcast <laughs> and just me in general, you would know that I love mini games. So what I've done is I've taken a bunch of the geomorphs and I think about a dozen of them. And what I've done is I have uh, marked them, you know, they're, they're all like lettered or whatever. And I made a little sheet of what's in each geomorph on some level, just some uh, loose stuff. I didn't get fully into it and I didn't mark the actual geomorphs. And the reason for this is my plan, and we haven't done it yet, is I'm going to lay them down face down on the table, probably six of them to start with. And I'm going to ask one of the players to flip one over. Once they flip it over, they're going to enter into a random area into that geomorph. And they'll know this before they're going in there. There's going to be a task. I'm not going to get too far into this. I don't, my players don't usually listen to this, but you never know. There's going to be a task they have to accomplish. It'll be the, the same task, basically, in every one. They'll know the thing they have to do to effectively get out of the geomorph. So once they're in this geomorph, they're going to see it. I'm just going to put it right there on the table in front of them. I'm not going to hide the rooms and stuff. And what I'm effectively going to do is say, you can maneuver through this geomorph, figuring out where this thing is that you have to accomplish in each one. And once you do that, you will be able to move forward. And basically everything, every edge of the geomorph is going to be considered a dead end until they do that. Then once they do the task, and they penetrate through to one of the, the, basically the end pieces, they'll pull another random one. And every time they take one away from the six face down, I'll keep adding, you know, to the face down pile until I have no more, of course. And what will happen is when they pull a new one, they'll put it on there. There's only ever going to be, and this is the part they don't know, don't listen to players, there's only ever going to be two active at a time. 
So when they move from one to the next, that first one will stay active. But as soon as they leave that next one somewhere, again, after completing a task, the first one will disappear. And I'm going to put it back into my pile. And basically, I'm going to be shuffling these piles up so they could get the same one again, basically. So in other words, the dungeon is going to be, think of that movie Cube. I think it was called Cube. Uh, there, was, there was a bunch of them, right, where they're kind of moving around. And what they realize, spoiler for the movie, is that the cubes themselves are actually also moving and shifting. And that's kind of what's going to be happening here. This dungeon's going to be, in, and because it's the mythic underworld, and because I don't have any intention to try to figure out some kind of math to make it work logically, it's going to more or less be random. But I'm going to allow, the obviously, the players to interact with it by choosing which one they choose. They won't be able to see, obviously, what they're picking, but at a certain point, they'll be able to get through though, right? There'll be a certain, and again, I don't want to get into all the details of it here, um, but once they've gone, if I, let's say they're traveling from point A to point B, I'll just decide, okay, that's four geomorphs they have to cross through to get there. It's two geomorphs they have to cross through. It's six. They won't know the number until they've done it once. And they're going to basically go into these spaces and there's going to be different monsters and stuff in them. If they clear one, then I'll have a chance that it will kind of refresh itself. Not that same session, obviously, but between sessions. Like once they leave the the underground and they come back, there'll be a chance that it's been refreshed. But if not, then it'll just be empty and kind of, in, in a sense, safe, right? Uh, although there will be wandering monsters. But I love the idea of the Geomorphs. And in a way, this is what has inspired me in my Dungeon 23. That's kind of my plan. Each one of these weeks, I'm creating these like sections and I could use any one of them as their own little kind of mini dungeon, or I could combine them in any way I want to have them kind of work together to create this kind of random thing. Now, I'm actually making true connections on these, but you could use them the way I'm using these geomorphs. So I think it's super interesting. Uh, we haven't actually done it yet, so I'll tell you how it plays out at the table when we do. My players tend to love this kind of stuff. They loved it when I put Outdoor Survival down. They liked it when we did the module and I, I had like little miniatures and I, they liked it when we were in a board game. <laughs> you know, they, they like bringing new, when I bring new and different stuff to the table. So hopefully they'll like this one as well. If not, I'll let you know. And if they do, I'll let you know. And yeah, that's it. Geomorphs. I'd love to know if you guys have ever used them, how you used them. Do you kind of plan it ahead of time, then draw the dungeon out? Or or is this, do you use them randomly at the table? Kind of freeform, because we'll see how this plays out. You can, of course, reach the show by all the usual means. I will say that at the end, I guess, because that's what people do in podcasts, right? You got to wait all the ways to the end. To just check the show notes. You'll see all the ways to reach me. In any case, I got a couple of calls. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Just listen to your latest episode. Yeah, I think accessibility is so important. And I don't know how other people do games, you know, creators do games, but I would assume you're using some kind of word processor normally to do it. And, you know, it's trivial to do an accessible, just a normal font, basic, no frills version. And then if you want a fancy version with crazy font, you know, you adjust it later, but you're not writing in these weird fonts, I wouldn't think. So it shouldn't be a big deal to have a plain Jane version of this thing out there, you know? I realize if you're super table and chart heavy, that might be a little bit extra work. But I agree with you. I think it's totally worth it. And, you know, as a creator, I would think you would want your games to be accessible to the widest audience. So, anyhow, great episode. Keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon. All right, that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thanks for your call, Jason. He was, of course, talking about the accessibility, which I talked about last episode, because 
the next caller, uh, Joe from Behind Sightless, had made a episode. Thanks again, Joe, for doing that. And Joe's calling in. It looks like, uh, you know, I never listen to these ahead of time. So <laughs> it's basically called Running Adventure Paths. So this is super interesting because I know Joe runs a ton of Pathfinder and was the uh, the GM of the first ever Pathfinder 2 actual play. So let's see what he has to say about running Adventure Paths. Hey, Daniel, thanks for giving the show a shout out, man. And thanks for thinking about other people. Like, that's not, <laughs> not that you don't think about other people, but differently abled people who might need accommodations to access awesome stuff, right? The more awesome stuff people can access, the more awesome people they will be in the world. So thank you for talking about that. Okay, now let's talk about running Adventure Paths. I'm currently running the Paizo Wrath of the Righteous Adventure Path, and I am running it almost, almost totally by the book. Uh, and there, there's a few reasons for this. One, I want to give the players the experience of playing through Wrath of the Righteous without a bunch of my own stuff. Because if, you know, if we wanted to play my own stuff, we would just play a homebrew game. But more importantly, it's because we're playing online, we only meet every other week, and we only play for like three, maybe four hours a session, and then we'll miss sessions sometimes. So we don't have that much time, and I really want to complete the adventure path. You know, I really want to get through all of it. And if I was throwing in a ton of side quests and, you know, just adding a bunch of stuff here and there, we would never get through it. You know, we've been playing this adventure path for almost a year now, and they're on the final dungeon part of the second book. And there are six books. <laughs> there are six books in this series. So that's what I'm working with, man. I need to... I got to move it along if we ever want to finish. So that's why I run it pretty much by the book. Now, if I was playing at home, around a table, longer sessions, meeting every week, then yeah, absolutely. I'd be adding in my own stuff. I probably wouldn't be using an adventure path in that case. But th that's my reason for doing it, man. Awesome show. Keep it up. Talk to you soon. Peace out. All right. Thanks, Joe. You know, I just want to say right now that I, I didn't mean to imply before I played this message that because you play Pathfinder, you need to run an adventure path. I mean, obviously, there's lots of people running plenty of homebrew things, but there are these paths, right? These adventure paths, as they're called, in Pathfinder and, and all those, also in games like Call of Cthulhu that are kind of legendary, right? They're like really well known. There's also the one in Warhammer that people talk about. Some people who play Warhammer are probably shouting at the <laughs> at the podcast, but there's another one that's like really, really uh, well known and people want to play through it, right? They want to play through this kind of classic scenario that so many people have played through to have this kind of shared experience. So I totally get like wanting to play through it and, and even staying as true to it as possible. And of course, you make a really good point. If you're, if you don't want your campaign or, you know, I won't say you don't want, but if it's not really possible or realistic that your campaign is going to just go on forever with an unlimited amount of sessions that you play all the time, and you do want to have this shared experience and and finish this amazing adventure, then staying close to it is is probably your best bet. I mean, I can say that with the Coriolis one, I stayed as close as I could to it. And unfortunately, we kind of took a break to finish up Hyperborea and we never got back to it. So hopefully we can kind of rev that one up because, you know, I do see this idea of like having this shared world and the shared experiences being really cool beyond like something simple like people will say like keep on the borderlands you know and so many people play it that but 
if you look at Keep on the Borderlands, it's so open-ended that even though everybody kind of played it and they might remember that there was an ogre or whatever, uh, spoiler, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember who was guarding. He was guarding the goblins, maybe, whatever, um, you know, and you get, you know, good TPK spot. A lot of people might remember that one encounter, but like the story around Keep on the Borderlands is not a shared story. So you can only have so much shared information there, whereas an adventure path basically has that shared story, which is very, very cool. So thanks again, Joe, for calling in. I'll put Joe's information down in the show notes. I will also put Jason's from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast down there as well. Okay, I was about to wrap up, and then I got another message from Direct Sun. So let's hear what they have to say. Just wanted to respond via your podcast to Jason calling in uh, about converting any module to any level. While I have not done this for an OSR-friendly rule set, uh, I have done this for 5e, and it is a nightmare. Um, there was the added overhead of converting it from 4e, which has its own intricacies, um, but 5e has so many things that, uh, that the DM needs to keep in mind if they want to challenge the players. Uh, you really need to know your group, you need to know their abilities. And I was doing this for a one-shot, just converting this uh, particular module. Um, so I had no idea what their, the abilities that they would select would be. Um, so I had to really go in there, gut the whole thing, even though I loved the bones of the adventure that I was converting. Um, and I had to use my best judgment on what general challenges for stuff should be. So I'm not saying it's impossible. It was just a ton of work in this particular instance for me for 5e. Um, and I think that for OSR-friendly systems, like maybe VX or uh, OD&D, you know, you're converting a module uh, to this and that. You might have less to think about or consider as a as a DM, so I will concede to that. Cheers. Okay, so that was Direct Sun kind of replying to Jason uh, in this conversation. I think originally Jason replied to him. <laughs> uh, you know, this uh, running modules at different levels. I feel like my two cents here is that you you need to know all the systems, right? So if you are converting, because you're talking about now converting a fourth edition module to fifth edition. If and I don't know your experience with fourth edition, but for me, I don't know anything about fourth edition. I, I I bought the the three books fairly recently to go through them and haven't had a chance yet. But I don't know anything about it. So if I picked up a fourth edition module, or let's say like a Pathfinder module, or I don't know a Traveler, you know, something where I don't understand the system at all, then it would be hard for me to translate it to any system I know, OSR or Five E. I think if you're comfortable with the different systems, it's a little easier, right? And, and I think and then of course you've got the level issue, because there's two parts here, right? There's the, you're running a module from a different system that has different conceits. Like a lot of times people will say, because I ran, I ran a lot of old school modules in fifth edition when I was running my campaign, and people will just be like, we'll just use the fifth edition stats for the monsters. But it doesn't always work out that way. Not everything is the same, right? The number of monsters that they put in there appearing, the way they're set up, how much treasure is in the thing, the way traps work, 
are different. And if you don't know the systems well enough, it can be tricky to just directly convert it. You can just use your best judgment, but it won't necessarily feel the right way. A great example of this, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I'll try not to give too much. When I ran White Plume Mountain and I bought the conversion for it, which I don't recommend because they didn't convert anything, there's a situation where something happens every round, basically, or every turn or something. Not taking into account the fact that rounds in first edition Dungeons and Dragons are one minute and rounds in fifth edition are six seconds or 10 seconds. So those are two very different things, right? Something happening once a minute and something happening once every six seconds are very, very different. And since that wasn't in there, and since I I knew that a round in first edition was one minute, I was able to translate it in my head. But if you didn't know that, if you just picked this up and you saw this was supposed to happen every round, it would completely ruin part of the suspense of what goes on because it would be happening too often and you would whatever. Again, trying not to spoil anything. There's lots of little things like that. So you do need to know both systems. I'll definitely give that if we're talking about system to system. I think the idea of just picking up a module from a random system you've never played before and converting it, if you're doing that, all you can really take is the framework and the skeleton, in my opinion. If you're converting from two systems that you know pretty well, then I think, again, the level thing just comes down to knowing, you know, uh, what, like you said, maybe knowing what the party's abilities are so you can make some changes to make that work or not. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a firm believer in not doing that. I, I like to not know what the party has. That's just how I like to run. When I ran 5th edition, I never knew. When people took new spells, when they leveled up, I did not ask them what they were. I didn't want to know what they were. I liked to be surprised by it. And sometimes that resulted in something that I thought was going to be very difficult becoming very easy. And sometimes it resulted in things being nearly impossible that I thought might have been easy if they had cho chosen different spells or different abilities. Because I like to just put challenges out there and let the players figure it out. That's just how I like to run, and my group seems to enjoy that, so it works for me. Everybody is different. I probably wouldn't do that at a convention, right? At a convention, I would want to know... You know, you don't want to sit down at a convention, because I'm thinking about this because I'm going to be a GaryCon. You don't want to sit down at a convention with this idea of running a three-hour adventure with all these challenges, and then every single challenge, somebody at the table is like, well, I just do this ability and it's done. And then, you know, 25 minutes later, you're done with the module and everybody's like, uh... You say, yeah, you don't want to do that, which is why I, you know, obviously use pre-gens, which most people do at conventions, for exactly that reason. And even then, players think of really clever ways to use things that I put on the character sheets that I'd never thought would be a thing and overcome stuff, which is the fun of the game for me. So, so yeah, I think that, you know, there. this is one of those answers that's kind of like both, right? You can run just about any module at any level if you feel comfortable doing that, but it also can be a challenge. And I think that part of it is just doing it. And maybe that'll be a challenge. Maybe we should, uh, in the Anchorverse, who wants to volunteer to to take a game, to take a module and run it at a different level and see see how they... Because I'm curious, because there were other things that came up, right? There was the idea of these things that are like mysteries, right? Where certain... certain and of course, the Assassin's Knot was a mystery. Things that uh, were mysteries or... You know, I'll tell a really quick story, actually, um, because that's what I do here. That where exactly what you're talking about with the abilities actually ended up kind of screwing over the player. So I had this, uh, I had my regular group and one of them invited this new guy to play with us. He's like, oh, my friend, he plays Pathfinder with us. He's a really good player, blah, blah. I'm like, cool. I always like to play with new people. So he's like, all right, I'm going to make a warlock. I'm like, cool. We're running fifth edition. It's a mystery. I'm running it based on an Agatha Christie's uh, mystery, Death on the Nile. So I wrote up this fifth edition thing and 
the the new player DMs me, you know, and he's like, listen, uh, you know, I always think of warlocks as being like secretive and people don't know. So I want everybody to think that I'm a sorcerer and I have a an imp familiar and I just want them to just be invisible. Nobody knows I have this familiar because I'm, I'm afraid that people will, you know, chastise me for it and blah, blah, blah. And he had to come up with this whole story. I was like, oh, that's cool. All right. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. Game starts. First scene. He turns to the party and goes, I have an invisible imp familiar. I'm just going to have them follow everybody so that we know. Because, of course, he knew it was a mystery game. He knew this. So he tried to thwart, <laughs> you know, the whole thing by, like, basically gaming the system, knowing what he had. But what's funny about it was he actually said, so I said, fine, well, you know, they can't follow everybody. Like, who are they going to follow? You know, what do you want to do? And who they followed actually sent them completely down the wrong path because they kind of followed one of the red herring people. And it was just really funny. I didn't change anything for that to happen. They spent most of the adventure and almost failed at solving the mystery because they were so convinced that their character's ability to have this world, this imp that could follow people was the only way that they could solve this thing. And I think that that tells you that, yeah. Sometimes players think they have this ability to do things and it doesn't always work. So there you go. I, that's my thoughts on that. And again, I've only played with that person twice and honestly didn't have very good experience either time. So I no longer play with them. I'm not a fan of people trying to win the game by lying and deceit. And, you know, I also once played this is a totally side note. I once also played in this group and the DM was super nice. I was a player. The player was like, I'm not going to tell anybody what my character class is, not even the DM. And he let him do it. I was like, what? You can't not tell the DM who your character class is? Oh, my God. Anyways, we run into a lot of interesting people out here in the world of RPGs. So thanks for calling in, everyone. All right, I will put a link to Direct Sun, to Jason, and to Joe over at Hindsightless down in the show notes. If you guys want to call into the show, you can follow the anchor link. You could also join my Discord. There's a link for that down there as well. Send me a personal message, you know, about your warlock <laughs> um, and uh, and so on. Oh, also, you can find a link to my Patreon if you're interested in supporting the channels. I appreciate that. And I will talk to you soon.